0: Let the word go The first. challenge,
1: the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s is a pioneering program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. That looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of shared values. Was something real? Sixty years later, we examine our divisions, our connections, our shared pains and successes in a new program called Challenge 2.0. The George Orwell novel, 1984, describes an era ruled by thought police with those who evade book bans charged with thought crimes. Ironically, as book bans are increasing rapidly across the United States, this Orwellian novel is among the books most frequently challenged and banned from school libraries and school classrooms. The American Library Association reports that 2022 was a record year for banning books, and 2023 is likely to set yet another record. It has actually become a form of entertainment, as some local groups supporting book bans offer beer and babysitting, together with votes on which books to eliminate. What is the cost of such censorship to our educational system and our country? That then is the topic of this edition of Challenge 2.0. If you've joined us, as we hope you have over the last two episodes, you know we were talking about Black history and the cost not only to young Black Americans of not being able to learn their history, but also the cost to people of other cultures of not being aware of that history. And this is also being addressed, as we said in our introduction, by this issue, uh, this practice of banning books and we have uh, two wonderful guests in this program to help guide us through this discussion and to guide our thoughts and so i'd like to introduce uh, gene cash who is a has been a teacher a principal and a coach and dr kriner cash who has served as superintendent of schools in a variety of major school districts so again uh and gene thank you for joining us again thank you jeff before we take up the issue of books And I know in our prior discussions, you've talked so much about how books were central to your life. I remember one of the great influences in my life is my dad got me a library card, and especially during summers, we'd make those trips to the library, pick out a couple of books, and uh, uh, how important those were. So I'd ask both of you, what impact have books had and reading on your lives? Are there a couple of titles in particular that were influential to both of you?
0: I think there's so many. I know when I was a youngster in elementary school, I would walk down and I would read books on Indonesia. I would read books about Mexicans, you know, people I didn't know anything about. And I remember the principal um, scolding me because I had a book that was overdue. You know, they would go through your lockers, you know, to check things out. And I had read the book. But I think that reading was a key to me. It was an adventure, you know, w- w- as I was reading.
2: When I was young, um, 10, 10, 11 years old, I read Wrinkle in Time. That's That was one of my favorite books mm-hmm. growing up. Later, uh, not out of high school, in a little group, honors group in high school, I read uh, Crime and Punishment um, by Dostoevsky and that that really was a great insight to the psychology and the of 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 the of a mind and the criminal and the guilt and the dissonance, the, the cognitive dissonance, that went through in in that um, main character's head. So I've read probably five to six thousand books uh, in my life, and I come at it this way. Um, I'm not against I, I don't believe in book bans. I don't think any book should ever be banned. They have been banned throughout history Mm
3: -hmm. from time to
2: time by uh, all kinds of uh, leaders, um, usually for politically motivated reasons, but there is no good reason to really ban any book. Mm -hmm. When you think about how many books there are in print and how many there were that are now out of print, there's 130 million books in print. So I won't get to my goal of reading every book. I love to read. <laughs> I won't get there. And, and no one is going to get there. So I stopped a long time ago of saying this book should be read. This book should be read. It would be great if everybody could read all of these books. And, and they should be able to choose what to read. And there should be some good decisions made about that. But those are curricular decisions. Those are household and home decisions. And I always believe that a great book not only should change your mind and influence your thinking, Mm -hmm. but it also should change your behavior. That's the key for me. Does it change your behavior? You can read all the books. We know learned people all over, read so many things, but they don't really change
3: Mm -hmm. in terms
2: of what they actually do about anything. And so that was what it was for us. It was about read as much as you can, about as many cultures and civilizations and histories and peoples as you can, and then go out, spread the news. But most of all, do something. Do something for good. See? Do something to change in the best interest of humankind,
1: all humankind,
2: not just my interest, on my family's interest, but for all people. That's how we were raised.
1: Let me ask you this question. When you grew up, both of you, did you have, and I have a sense of this because you've talked about this a little bit, were there many books that describe that were available to you, that describe the lives of the many successful uh, Black men and Black women? And uh, how important is it for young people to have access to books that describe people like them or that they can be?
2: Yeah. Let me say this, Gene. So, so as I said, we had a home curriculum, very strong home curriculum. My father went to Howard university. Mm -hmm. He had some of the great thinking persons as professors. He had them: Mordecai Johnson, E.E. Just Sterling Brown, E. Franklin Frazier. Those were his professors. So I found works by them, Elaine Locke. I found works by them in the, his library when I would go in and start browsing and looking through books. Because I told you, we didn't have television. Didn't believe in it. And there weren't computers back when we were working.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So you only had books to refer to and to gain knowledge. So all of that was in there. And then books by Phyllis, poems by Phyllis Wheatley. Sojourner Truth, Mary Bethune Cookman, Arthur Ashe. He loved Arthur Ashe because he played tennis. He was a good tennis player. He liked Langston Hughes, so he had a lot of Langston Hughes's poetry Mm -hmm. in the house. Martin Luther King, W.E.B. Du Bois. We found books about these people. They were all in the libraries, and I've read and would... Um, dive into them uh, growing up. So when you have, and you grow up like that, the church used to be a key espouser of Black history, and you could learn a lot through class sessions there. That is what what we need to to get back to, is -hmm. to stabilize these families, make the entire community a learning experience, because it's not about where you get it, it's that you get it and you Mm -hmm. get it right. So community centers, churches, after-school programs, before-school programs, Saturday school programs, all of that is a place to become imbued with books, period. Do not ban books. What's the use? It's only a small fraction that are banned anyway. Mm -hmm. Gene says 4,000, but that's not even a big number when you consider all the books that there are. And So don't ban the books. Let kids read. Let them explore. We live in a very diverse society. These books that are being banned right now, Jeff and Jean, they focus primarily on what we call BIPOC authors and subject matter, Black, Indigenous, people of color. That's BIPOC. Mm-hmm. That's why the white majority who has an agenda of keeping that information suppressed aren't, don't want those books taught and learned, and their children to be exposed to uh, truths that may make them feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You gotta learn to deal with uncomfortable. You gotta be comfortable being uncomfortable in this society. Trust me. Okay. And then there's a lot of content on LGBTQ in these books and content. And when you read, which I did, because I wanted to learn why there's such a backlash against these stories. And I had so many kids that were struggling with their own identities and their sexuality, mm-hmm. and they were being bullied mercilessly. I wanted to know, why is there such a backlash against kids trying to, trying to be? And so when you get into Mike Huckabee, for example, and he's just one uh, mouthpiece for things that they call the big, the three C's, Christianity, capitalism, and the Constitution. That's what made America great. And if we if we hew closely to those three C's, we can make it a great again. But it's being under attack. Mm -hmm. And so they saw books, the BIPOC books on DEI and how to be an anti-racist by Ibram X Kendi, for example. And all of these books about children who are grappling with their identity and their sexuality as being against the very foundations of Christianity. And so you could see Black Baptist, some Black Baptist strong members of the church have the same view as a conservative white GOP member, for example, on those issues. They could have had the same exact feeling. So groups feel similar on this. This isn't a Black, white only issue. Mm-hmm. But it is one that they, we need to keep the books in there for the children that, that, that want to learn about it and want to understand better. These authors have been intentional about that. And so I want all the books in the library. You're only banning a very, 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 very small fraction of books when you ban books, when you consider there's 130 million books in print. Mm-hmm. Stop it, it's a fruitless exercise. Let's read as much as we can about as much as we can,
1: period. Gene, we've swung into this issue of why this is happening. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, What's the background?
0: I think fair. I think exactly as Kroiner was saying, like over in the corner, I have over there Days of Grace about Arthur Ashe. Mm -hmm. Behind me, Toni Morrison in some of her books comes up with those questions that Kroiner was talking about. As a principal, the bullying that you saw in school and had to stop, period. You know, I would have kids do a play. But someone who was different and how we're going to treat each other, you know, not to embarrass somebody in front of the group, but we would do that. That would be the first week of school. You know, we we would have assemblies, inappropriate bullying. You don't touch certain people who don't want to be touched. Girls want to be respected. So if we don't look at that as a society, you know, if my neighbor falls down, I'm falling down. Mm -hmm. My neighbor's being bullied. I'm being bullied. Or my Karina's grandkids are going to be bullied, you know, if we don't take action. And I mean firm action.
2: And that's going to the state legislature, going Mm -hmm. to Olympia. But book bans, you know, the Bluest Eye, Beloved, the Uncle Tom's Cabin, okay? Um, Fahrenheit uh, 400. Um, All of these animal (laughs) Farm. I mean...
1: Yeah.
2: some of the classic books in white culture Western culture have been banned for some period of time uh, before uh, the Bible has been banned in some cultures and societies I mean so so that is such a ridiculous and poor notion it never serves democracies well to ban books you know we need to have as much knowledge as possible in order to, sustain
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, a, a great democracy, and that's being challenged, and when you see this juxtaposed right here at the same time, book bans, democracy under threat, as Gene said, not only here, but around the world, mm-hmm. uh, there should be cause for concern. It, he's right. There is. This is not the time to sit this one out. We have to be all in on this one. Um, but they, these are a series of battles going on right now in these so-called culture wars, and I know that I'm going to always fight. I'm going to fight till the end, till I die. But I'm going to find constructive battlefields uh, to to fight this on. And we're here in part because messaging and getting words out and having different viewpoints about these uh, critical topics. This is one strategy to 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 stay on the battlefield.
1: You're both uh, highly influential. Uh, educators. And so does that make sense to you that we're going to have trouble recruiting teachers, retaining teachers as a result of things like book bans?
2: Absolutely. You can see it already. What I noticed is, and the one thing I would say about white teachers, well, I knew we had white teachers, most 86%. That was, you know, whole ethnic groups. That's what you did. You went into teaching or you became mm-hmm. a fireman, or you became a policeman. So you don't fight against that. What you do is you say, okay, what, what among the membership wants to learn some things about their students that they might not presently know or understand.
3: Mm-hmm. And when
2: you approach it that way, you find that there's a whole lot of hands that go up and say, I want to learn more. I want to learn more. And so that's what we did. We, we really had a lot of um, excitement and mm-hmm. participation in the staff uh, development sessions and teaching sessions and some marvelous facilitators. And so I was very encouraged by that. But now, you know, without continued leadership, because a lot of people say leadership matters, but they really don't understand how much it matters until you don't have it. Right. And, and so uh, I worry that just that fast, we can start to turn the clock back and start to have really, really important foundational works, not just mm-hmm. Black history works, all kinds of foundational good books, great books uh, start to be plucked uh, out of our uh, te- out of the, 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 the grasp of our children and exposure to our children, just because a few people get up and said, well, it has this in it, or it has that in it. And they took one word or one sentence out of a whole book and, and start to put it down. You see, the point is that when kids have interest and motivation, interest and effort, they thrive in school. They mm-hmm. have interest in school. Their attendance goes up. Their behavioral issues go down. See, and their motivation is, is, is sky high. We're taking away those tools. That's what I saw in Florida. My sister, who was a teacher of of really difficult children.
3: Mm-hmm. She
2: she agreed with me. When you take these tools away from teachers who are trying to connect with their students, they're going to leave the profession. There's already too much violence in schools and going on with behavior yeah. now anyway. The behavior is crazy in a lot of places. It's not just straight behavior, though. it's what undergirds that behavior that you have to look at. And so we have to begin to... Uh, really understand the impact of taking knowledge away and chipping away at the age edges and the base of what kids need to know to be, to be uh, successful citizens in in, in a democracy. Uh, We, we try to give as many tools as possible to teachers to help them with their, with Mm -hmm. their students from all these different backgrounds. But what, what, when you start talking about book bans, then like Jean said, it becomes something else. And then it, it grows and it migrates. And now you're taking away the very things that make a teacher effective.
3: Mm -hmm. They
2: have to have a lot of tools in their toolbox. I don't care what color you are as a teacher, where you come from. You need a big tool chest to teach effectively today, particularly in our urban
3: schools.
1: I can imagine. What I would ask each of you to do is uh, offer up some suggestions uh, for our viewers, our listeners as to what you think they ought to be doing.
0: To me, parent involvement is the key.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, the more parents you have in the schools that are not just there to babysit, but are there to be engaged in the classroom. I've had volunteers come into the schools and um, sit next to the student, help them read, take the student to the library, show them what there is to read, and also to be involved with me in Olympia. Because when I go down there, I get kind of, you know, I got to be careful. I'd rather have a parent talk to the state legislatures about what's good for the schools and what's not good for the schools. Mm -hmm. But I think that what I would suggest
2: is it's parent involvement. Let me just quickly say uh, that books can bring us together. Mm -hmm. Lavar Burton had had mentioned, he believes that. And I believe it, but with the caveat, if we keep an open mind about what the book was written for, mm-hmm. why and who and what, uh, we can books can bring us together no matter how um, heinous or offensive or disturbing the content can be. We can have some really, really healthy dis- discussions, I hope and trust in a democracy, but if we don't start to get those kinds of predispositions around books, we're headed for a slippery slope. We're headed for a slippery slope, which can quickly, and we already seen some good evidence of it, drive us right into an anti-democratic society,
3: mm-hmm. an
2: authoritarian society, a fascist society. So that's important to, to get the mindset. The other thing that I say to get to, your, to the question is let me add, and beyond Princeton, I went to, St- I, I got a master's degree from Stanford University in policy analysis, administration and policy analysis. Policy is where the game is. That's what I learned, really, the gist of it out of that program. And then my doctorate was at UMass Amherst, and it was in cultural diversity and curriculum reform. Mm -hmm. so there's the there are the answers the answers are this you have to have an active intentionality about the written and the hidden curriculum the written what is down what you learn what teachers teach but there's also a hidden curriculum about what you actually
3: do Mm
2: -hmm. how you present the material what you leave out what you include your biases that, as an individual person, come to play in on that content. So I'm very, very aware of it, very sensitive, and I've been very um, intentional about making sure that that cultural diversity gets infused really heavy doses into the curriculum. But we got to go further. We've got to get. We've got to fight the battlefield on the policy level. So here's an example that we actually did and are in the middle of. And I think all states, you have to get in buses, Mm -hmm. you have to get in trucks and cars and vehicles and head to the state house and make presentations before the commissioners of education, before the policymakers, the houses, the senates, the legislative body writ large, all of that. Make your powerful presentations with a lead presenter but you be there standing with a call to action.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Because to mitigate this current onslaught of African-American history, erasure and falsehoods that are now reoccurring, they've happened before, for marginalized communities at this time, there must be number one, a call, an historic call for action on African-American history and diversity in all states and district curricula. the dangerous ideology ideology of teaching our children that African Americans benefited, I've said this before, in any kind of way, from the atrocities of slavery called us to action.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: When slavery ended and the not ended, but through the Civil War, you know who was paid reparation? and who was given money were the slave owners. They were paid by the federal government because of loss of property. And now you wonder why reparations continues to be in the background for black communities because the balance sheet has never been balanced.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And so these kinds of things have to be corrected by having a powerful evidence-based presentation, I'd be happy to, to present some of these, but I've also uh, mentored people who have okay. presented these kinds of printed presentations to state education policy making bodies that there should, must be a rigorous, at least one rigorous course in African-American history that is required in order to be conferred a diploma from your High school and your state conferred by the state you get it your diploma is conferred by the state the principal says it but Mm -hmm. the state confers the diploma there should be a required at this time after 400 years and all of the egregious things that have happened to our people we must demand a course in African-American history that is rigorous and extremely well done Mm -hmm. for graduation requirement. And that's what I'm calling for. That's Mm -hmm. what I'm about at this time, not only for black American history, but for indigenous people's history, for brown Hispanic culture, but it has to get done all the way to the level of policy. It has to become policy. Mm -hmm. Then it's measured, then it's followed, and then it matters.
1: Well, I would say it's very apparent that uh, this would benefit from more discussion. And so I would extend an invitation to both of you to come back on uh, where we can pick up this uh, topic uh, in the future, perhaps as we see how it begins to shift. Uh, But thank you so much for offering your wisdom and your experience uh, and your passion on this issue and the need to respect teachers as the core element of uh, what can carry us through this so thank you both so very much and thank you all for watching and we hope you'll join us for the next episode of challenge 2.0 thank you if you've enjoyed this program found our conversations to be informative entertaining and thought-provoking and the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution Your support will not only help our program continue, it will also support the broader efforts of Paths to Understanding, our supporting parent nonprofit organization.